brought your copy of God's Word open to the book of Matthew. I do always put the verses on the screen, but um, it's always <clears throat> it's also good to to have a copy of God's Word and to see it, hold it, hear the sound of Bibles opening on the Lord's Day, as we stand on the truth that we find in God's Word. Amen. This morning we're going to be looking at chapter 10, verse 16 down through 23, and as we saw last week, Jesus began the process of commissioning, the commissioning process of his 12 disciples, and here we're going to see he's continuing in that theme, and he's going to be preparing his disciples for what's to come as a result of being sent out to do the work of ministry. We're going to discover in these verses, verses 16 through 23, yet again, uh, exactly how high the cost of following Jesus uh, truly is for those of us interested in being his disciples. Uh, the, the reality is, is that salvation is free. It's the free forgiveness of sins. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man boast. It's free. But when you enter into that discipleship relationship with Jesus and you start reading his word and learning to obey what he's commanded, you realize therein that it's actually going to cost you everything. It not, you didn't do anything to earn salvation. Again, it's free, but on the, on the other side. And Jesus is giving a... These are some of the hard teachings of Christ with regard to prepara preparation for doing... <clears throat> his work of ministry as those willing to follow him. And isn't it good, after all, when you're about to be in, engaging into some kind of endeavor to know in advance what particular obstacles or challenges that are there in the way that you might face? It's kind of good to know in advance. It helps us to be prepared for that which we're going to face. And so Jesus is going to let his disciples, these 12 in particular, know in advance to a certain degree, not in every degree, but to a certain degree that it's going to cost them personally. It, there will be a personal cost that they will pay to participate in doing the work of ministry and being sent out as preachers who have his authority to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper. It will come at a high personal cost to them. And for those who make that reasonable and very radical decision, of believing their gospel message, the gospel message that they're preaching, of repentance of sin, etc., and becoming a follower of Jesus, they too uh, will be those faced with these same challenges, this high cost. So in a general summary, in our passage this morning, I believe it's fair to say that Jesus is here letting them know, and by extension, I think us, those of us who have willingly chosen to follow him today, uh, that narrow path that leads to life that we walk on, uh, that if we're going to have Jesus on our lips and in our lives, there's a high probability that persecution will find you. It got kind of quiet, didn't it? And we all have to admit, and this is one of the difficulties in a passage like this, the culture in which Jesus is writing this and the 12 disciples and the, that crowd that they, he looked out on and had compassion for, uh, those that Jewish audience, uh, 
the, the, the cultural context in which we receive the, uh, the promise of persecution is so significantly different, it's hard for us to really connect. It's hard for us to connect the, the, this concept of that when I make a cognizant decision, a choice to follow Jesus, I hear the preaching of the gospel, and I say yes to that, that persecution is going to be a part of the normal warp and woof, the normal course of our lives here in America. Just It seems contrary to everything that we kind of hear, the, that wealth and health gospel that gets so promoted within our culture it's just this seems to be completely contrary to that and so it's sometimes hard for us to connect so as we walk through these passages of scripture I want you to try as best you can to realize that this is a call that if you're going to choose to follow Jesus to be his disciple that this is a high cost you need to be willing to commit to yourselves in following him oh I don't know if I'm going to ever face persecution like this you may not but you may we don't know what's coming in the future, right? But we have, to, we have to make the connection within our cultural context. But what is the persecution that I may face? What is it for me? We're going to talk about some of that. It, it gets, there's some really difficult things that we need to deal with in this passage. And Jesus deals with them head on. And he lets his disciples know, this is what you are about to experience. And these words that Jesus speak, oftentimes were intended, it seems, to kind of shock the sensibilities of those who are listening to him. It, it almost seems like these words that Jesus speak and shock the sensibilities of those listening to him are intended for a very particular purpose to make us think long and hard about said commitment that we have to really being his disciples. And in our culture, that's difficult. Because sometimes we feel like it doesn't cost us anything. Really? Really? You know, are you following me? I need a little affirmation. Somebody give me, thank you. Let me get an amen. No, I'm just kidding. Just, just, just need to know that we're connecting here uh, with this. So uh, this morning I want to teach us and show us from this very unique passage. And it's unique for a couple of ways. Contextually, no, Jesus is dealing with the 12. I pointed that out very fervently, right? These 12, verse 5, Jesus sent out. These 12 are the, the apostolic individuals, the apostles, capital A apostles that Jesus sends out to do ministry. And he gives these 12, remember all that? The ones with the authority to heal? We don't have this authority. We're, we're not to wrongly assume that we're like these 12. We're not like these 12, we're different than these 12 in significant ways, and that's important to understand. However, in this passage, as it goes in 16, Behold, I send you out. The you he's talking to obviously would be these 12. He's about to send these 12 with these, with these authorities of his to go out and do this ministry. But the interesting thing about this passage from 16 down through verse 23 is that from verse 17 to verse 22, the, the heart of it seems to be an expansion. It's almost, um, there's a, you've, you've all heard of like a telescope, right? You, you can see things really far away when you look through a telescope, and there's a, a hermeneutic principle of telescoping, if you will, within certain passages where you see in a passage, and as you're reading the passage, it's almost like you're able to see beyond the passage and look down 
Sometimes it's in predictive prophecy that we kind of get this principle of being able to see the end while we're still here at the beginning and we see that that's yet to come. Some of that is at play. In other words, verses 16 clearly seem to be talking about the disciples. He's about to send them, those 12, out, but yet it gets mingled in with a broader context that seems to be much broader than what they, just they themselves did, 17 down through 22, and then you get back to 23, and it seems to kind of narrow back into their lives again. So it's a really unique passage in that regard. So what that means is there's application here for these 12 who are being sent out, but the, 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 the application isn't just exclusively for them. By extension, we, we and all of the, us who are going to be followers of Jesus, who are going to be promised persecution as a result of following him, there are things in here that we need to know too because we're going to be doing this same kind of ministry, similar ministry until Jesus comes again for his church. I hope that makes some sense. This is, a, this is one of those unique passages that sometimes can be difficult to understand. And when, when we get to verse 23, you'll see what I mean. It's a very difficult verse sometimes to understand, unless you kind of are getting and understanding the bigger picture. Let's dive into this. Look at verse 16 with me. Jesus says to these 12, behold, I, he's in this process of he's commissioned them and he's given them authority. He says, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Um, we really need to pay attention to what Jesus says here in verse 16. This should be that which is a little bit shocking of our sensibilities. We have an understanding that, you know, we belong to Jesus and everything's going to be okay and he's going to take care of us. He's going to meet our needs. He's going to mend up our, our wounds. He's, it's these kind of things. Jesus, take note, Jesus is purposefully, what's it say? I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Have you ever been to a wolf-sheep fight? Who wins? Okay, so hypothetically speaking, if there were three sheep, I'm stacking the odds, three sheep and one wolf, would you change your mind? No, you just say breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Right? Okay, so look at 16 again. Jesus is saying to those precious 12 disciples, those chosen 12 of his who are his apostles to go out and to be the founders of the church, the, the super lucky ones, right? Because they got to walk with Jesus. They heard him. They talked with him. They ate with him. They felt him. They prayed with him. Those guys, hey, I'm sending you out into the midst of wolves. You're the sheep, and they're going to probably devour you the way wolves devour sheep. I'm purposely doing this in your life. Doesn't that seem a little bit backwards with regard to how we tend to think of ministry? Like, Jesus is going to send me into ministry and it's just going to be roses and a skipping through the petals of life. It does, we, we have such a, we've created such a cultural Christianity within America because of the wealth that we have here. It really does make it difficult to us to, to understand these things that Jesus is saying, I'm sending you, my beloved disciples, my precious sheep, into the midst of wolves. 
where you're going to have the opportunity, the blessed opportunity of being persecuted for my namesake. Now, remember that glorious and that, that precious authority that Jesus granted uh, these 12 to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to raise the dead? Remember that? Well, unfortunately, uh, that didn't include the survival skills of being able to fight like a ninja and run as fast as cheetahs. All of that amazing authority over sickness and death and disease cannot protect them from the wolves. They don't get to do another Iron Man. You know, they don't go ring and and just. They lay hands on people. They can get well, but they don't have the ability to go and just blow people away. They they can't do that. He he didn't grant them such. survival abilities with those amazing precious powers that he did give them and he lets them know that he's going to be sending them out amongst this crowd this Jewish brethren the the wolves here probably are most notably to be understood as the wolves within that culture that that, that he's sending those 12 out into who would be the religious leaders of their day which would be those scribes those Pharisees whom who have already indicated a complete a vitriolic position towards Jesus. They've slanderously reported Jesus as doing the powers that he has at the, at the power of Satan, at the ruler of the demons. And so obviously when Jesus sends his 12 out to do the same, what will be the same mode of operandus for them? They're only doing the powers. They're only able to do what they're doing because they are in cahoots. They're an agent of Satan. They cast out demon by the power of demons. That's what they're going to say. And so you can imagine uh, these 12 Jewish people going into primarily a Jewish context in that large Galilean region that has over millions of people, and they start preaching about this Jesus guy who's the one who has promised Messiah to come, and all their shepherds are telling them, no, no, those, are, those people are false. They're, they're doing what they do at the power of Satan. Um, they're being set up as sheep amongst wolves. Oh, and don't forget... He told them not to take any money, uh, no food, extra shoes, cloak. You just go into the cities and the towns, and you're going to find people there that are worthy. And when you find those worthy people, people who are willing to listen to the message and are receptive of the message, stay with them. Stay there until you leave. They will be the blessed ones who get to bless you in the name of the Lord. Seems like a pretty tall task, doesn't it? Seems like the, uh, the high cost... Say that again, Lord? No. <laughs> I don't know, okay, where am I now? I'm completely lost now. I'm somewhere in the Bible. Um, okay, let me just turn my screen right. Watch this. We're going to pick up right here. Um, which shows us, by the way, here in Second Corinthians 4, it shows us that this principle that Jesus started with his disciples, we see it, it's going to continue to the apostle Paul. Paul wasn't a part of the original 12. He was one untimely born. We could have that discussion, but not now. But notice in Paul, Paul says this when he's writing to the Corinthians, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves in every way afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about 
in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to say that the things that are going to come upon you are for my name's sake. Paul is just, in, in essence, articulating that very reality that all of the persecutions and sufferings that he faced in his life, he was told that the amount of difficulties he would face as a result of being a follower of Jesus, it was for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for the momentary light affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. Again, long before the Apostle Paul became a faithful follower and could say things like this, Jesus first showed his, his 12 disciples that the high cost of following him would be high indeed, but ever so worth it. Did you see that? Paul referred to it as light affliction. All of these things, afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, light affliction, when compared to something far greater, eternity, living in light of eternity, this eternal weight of glory that is ours. So again, Jesus sent 12 purposefully as sheep into the midst of wolves, to do ministry, gospel ministry, praise Jesus, because after all, if they hadn't gone out to do gospel ministry, would it have reached the Americas? Would we be here in the Lord, on the Lord's Day worshiping King Jesus without people willing to count the cost of going out as sheep in the midst of a world of wolves to proclaim a gospel message so that his sheep could be found and then those sheep could go or out, could be discipled and trained and go out and that, that could perpetuate itself over and over and over and go around the world to the uttermost parts of the world. Jesus is willing to spend the lives of, the lives of his disciples willingly and purposefully for a much higher cause, which is the glory of God, which we see in the face of Christ Jesus in the gospel. Are we willing to give our lives for such a glorious gospel? Are we willing when we say, yes, we want to be followers of Jesus, are we willing to give our lives for so glorious a gospel? These men were faced with those very immediate realities. The second they went out, they were immediately faced with such difficulty. See why it's hard for us to connect? It is. This is so hard for us to connect with. I pray that the Lord will help us to connect and understand that we too must be making decisions about the high cost of following Jesus today, which might mean when you sit around the Thanksgiving table annually with your family, you're willing to be an ambassador of Christ, though in chains sitting there and making good report on how Jesus has done marvelous things in your life and the life of your family over the past year. Even if they don't want to hear it again, you tell them again in love. That might be the high cost that you have to give right now, but if that's the high cost you give, are you willing to give it? Or are you going to go to sleep at the will, go to sleep in life, and get numbed by the culture that you're surrounded in like the frog in the kettle? We, listen, we've got to count that cost. Amen? 
So Jesus said, notice the verse of end, end of 16, what? Notice the very end of verse 16. He didn't say, so go out and be as reckless as you can and throw yourselves on the sword. No. Be shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. This, this idea of being shrewd as a serpent is the idea of conducting yourself with stealth, with cunning wisdom in a way that you deal with the unbelieving world in which you're taking the gospel. So by it all means you can make the greatest impact possible. One commentator said it like this. Let me see if I've got it. Yeah, the basic idea is that of saying the right thing at the right time and place, of having a sense of propriety and appropriateness, and of trying to discover the best means to achieve the highest goal. I mean, honestly, is it a wise thing for us to go into some situation as an ambassador of Christ and needlessly and crassly bring just harm to the relationship through the harsh or crass things that we may say? Well, absolutely not. There'd be no profit in that. And we need to remember what Jesus has already taught. If they rejected your gospel preaching at the last Thanksgiving, it's been a year. It's, it's been a year. You can kind of lay it out there again. And if they start to reject your mission there at Thanksgiving, which is greater than just enjoying food and getting connected with grandma and grandpa again, which that's great, and aunts and uncles and cousins, that's marvelous. But if your greater mission is to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and be ambassadors for Christ wherever we go, so when they're carving the turkey, perhaps you just talk about it again and talk about the wonderful things that God's been doing in your life. That's what everybody else is doing. They're telling you about all the wonderful things that's been happening in their lives whether it's the new membership of the club and how they've been getting their guns stronger or whatever it may be. People just talk about the things they love. They talk about the things they do. That's what we do when we get together with people. So you be the one that talks about what you love and what you do. But don't needlessly incite anger as some way to get the last word in. That's not shrewdness at all. That would be folly. Um, because it does say, notice it also says what? Uh, not only shrewd, but innocent Innocent as doves. I mean, is there anything more innocent when you think of the, the, the image of, of, of the dove? I mean, it, it just connotes the idea of tranquility, of harmlessness, of peacefulness. And that's where shrewdness comes to play. You, you've, you learn how to work the crowd appropriately and you put the, the gospel on your lips in such a way that it, it's, like, uh, it's like dripping of, of, of milk and honey. You're not harsh and crass. You're innocent as doves. You're, you're shrewd with wisdom, and you, you have a peacefulness about you in the process of doing this work. Now, um, these disciples, these 12 in particular, um, whom he's sending out uh, to minister uh, for no reason of any of their own, I'm sure... Um, they're probably having thoughts, like you may be having thoughts, which is, that's easier said than done. And I think they're thinking such thoughts probably would have a, a much larger um, reasonability in, in thinking that, like, Jesus has got them huddled up, he's looking at this massive crowd in the larger Galilean region, I'm about to send you out with this authority, and by the way, you're like a sheep going out to wolves, they're going to probably devour you, so be shrewd and be innocent like doves, but good luck, go get them, boys. They're probably having thoughts like that. That's a lot easier said than done. We don't have anything to, to purchase goods or wares with. Thanks, Jesus. You, you're really um, sending us out for like sheep to be slaughtered. Might be some of their thoughts. 
How about you? Sometimes we read passages and you hear preachers and you're always thinking, like I, I tend to say, that's easier said than, than done. Good luck with that. And so then Jesus says to them in verse 17, notice, oh, he says, but beware of these men. So it goes from bad to worse. Beware of the men, of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and, they will even, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So they're sitting there thinking, okay, I need to be shrewd and innocent. And he says, oh, and you're going to get flogged in their courts and the synagogues of your Jewish people. And then ultimately, this is where you see some telescoping, it seems, from my best perspective. And you're going to be ultimately the disciples of Christ. We don't know if these 12 were in particular brought before governors and kings. But we do know that like the Apostle Paul talks about in, in 2 Corinthians, uh, there in 2 Corinthians 11, 24, it says, Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes and one. We know the Apostle Paul received multiple lashes. And we also know the Apostle Paul, let's see, it was in Acts 23, 24, that Paul was brought safely to Felix the governor. And then in verses, uh, in, in Acts 12, 3, um, Herod the king saw that it was pleased uh, for him to be persecuting the Jews, and so he sent and he had Peter arrested, had Peter put in, in jail, and was going to bring Peter uh, before trial, before the Jewish people sometime after the Passover, and that's when the Lord released Peter from, from that prison. But uh, in, in Acts 12, 11, Peter came to himself and said there in the prison, Now truly I know that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, who was a kingly sort of individual in that culture. So we see that some of these things that Jesus talked about did take place in the lives of these disciples, but post-resurrection. He's speaking it to them prior to his crucifixion and resurrection, some of the things that were going to happen to them post-resurrection. So again, some of that telescoping aspect and application in their lives, and I think in the lives of other disciples who follow Christ as well. But look again at verse 18. And this is what we have to remember. You will even be brought before governors and kings, not that part, but this part right here. Wherever your persecution may find itself, a flogging somewhere, I don't know what your persecution may be, a tongue lashing over Thanksgiving and the cutting of turkey, I don't know what your persecution may be. But you always have to remember this part right here. For my sake, as a testimony. That's it. Are we willing to stand in the gap for his sake to be a testimony? Whatever the difficulty, no matter how great the difficulty may be, floggings before governors, before kings, before Aunt June at Thanksgiving. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Where is your gap? Where has God placed you as a disciple in that particular gap, wherever it's at? Are we, are we willing to be in that gap for his sake in other words, with the, with the name of Jesus on our lips and in our lives, to be a testimony. To be a testimony to them, whoever it is that we're in the gap there and whoever we're surrounded by. In their, in their particular case, it would have been these governors and kings and Gentiles that would have been surrounding them at that point in time. Are we willing to stand in that gap, endure the hardships, the high cost of following Jesus for his sake, and as a testimony to the world that God is what? Good. That God is good. That God loves his children infinitely more than anybody else can love them. 
So much so that he's willing to send them out as sheep into the midst of wolves and to, and to spend their life for the greatest purpose ever known to man, which is the proclaiming of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that's going to bring about an eternity in a completely different world that's going to last forever and ever and ever. We got to be willing, people willing to stand in the gap as were they. John told us this in his gospel in John 15, 20. He says, remember the, world, the word, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Listen, every person who publicly identifies themselves with Jesus through conversion becomes a potential target for Satan and for persecution of the unprincipled, unbelieving governments of this world, the, the, the false world religions that surround us and or other fellow citizens amongst whom we live as we longingly and lovingly attempt to stand in the gap for the name of Jesus to be a testimony. And as such, God's children facing such hostility need to persevere when put under the fire. And when we do, that testimony is remarkable. Look at verse 19. But when they deliver you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say. Do you think that perhaps as Jesus was saying these words, these 12 being sent out as sheep and the wolves were a little more than concerned as to how they were going to actually pull this off, how they were going to do this, how they were going to make this happen? I would have been. I'm just trying to walk at least a few steps in their shoes. And I'm thinking, how, how is this going to even work? Jesus gives graciously, tells them, when they deliver you over, it's not if, but when they do, don't worry about it. How about that for good news? Hey, guys, I love you infinitely. You're my sheep. I'm going to send you out into slaughter. And when they deliver you, don't worry about it. How's that settle? Did I not say that Jesus has a way of saying some pithy words that are just intended to prick our imagination to make us think deeply about the true cause. Do I really want to follow this guy? This is, this is how he treats those whom he loves? Think about this. Is this really how God treats his kids? Would we treat our kids this way? We like to quote that, that passage, you know, the one that says that, um, the one that just slipped out of my head. Uh, about um, God giving good gifts. In James 1, keep talking louder, Harky, I can hear you. Every good gift it comes down from the Father, a perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or, si or sh shifting shadow, right? Are you not to some degree perplexed thinking, well, what's good about this kind of a gift? Be honest. Is anybody else with me? I'm just... I tend to think very logically. It's the, way the way my, it's the way my brain works. Are you finding logic and reasonability in what Jesus is saying to these children of God whom he loves dearly? Would you treat your kids like this? Listen, God's willing to treat his kids in ways that we're not willing to treat our kids all the time. We try to protect and shelter and care and hover and 
over-provide and try to remove every obstacle to make their lives so grand and so great. And then we wonder when they grow up why they don't really respect the authority in the life because they never had to have go through hard. We try to remove every hardship. God ain't removing any hardships. God's like, I'm going to send my kids out in the midst of some serious hardship. And what you need to know when you get out there in the midst of serious hardship, young man, daughter of mine, is to do not worry about how or what you're going to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now, it needs to be rightly stated and understood that this passage is not an excuse um, for lazy preachers insisting that every utterance that they make on Sunday morning is to be spontaneous and unprepared. Because the Holy Spirit's just going to give me the words to say in the moment when I need. How many of y'all heard this passage just abused grossly? I mean, on so many of occasions, I could tell you, it's like the Holy Spirit's just going to give me something in, the, in this moment up here. I didn't prepare at all. I just got up here, and I'm just going to teach the word. He's just going to give it to me right here. That is not even contextually here at all, but this, this passage gets pulled out of context and eisegetically used wrongly all the time. But let me tell you this, brothers and sisters, and I think this does apply to us as well as them. If you find yourself in a situation where persecution is at hand, and who knows, could we perhaps be the generation that's living, that we could be the church that's living in the last generation when the Lord comes? We absolutely could. And let me promise you, if you didn't hear my Daniel series, you need to go listen to it. Persecution is following. We could eventually find ourselves in this kind of level of persecution. But let me tell you, if you find yourself in this level of persecution, perhaps flogging because of his namesake, being drugged before governors or kings or even Aunt Sally Sue over the turkey slicing. I hear so many people say, oh, I just don't know what I would say. Listen, just speak. Just start talking. I think that when you're under persecution, not just in general casual conversation, I'm unprepared, Lord, give me something. <laughs> and nothing come out. No. But when you're in persecution, I think the Lord will provide for you words to say, and you'll be saying things that you're like, I don't even know where that came from. I mean, I know it was me saying it. I heard myself saying these words, but I think the Lord just gave me the right words to say in that right moment, in that time, and I think the Lord still does that today, without question, without question. So don't be, don't be afraid to get yourself too deep in a hole in a conversation with somebody thinking, man, it leads to potential persecution, i.e. maybe the loss of a job. Don't be afraid just to be a witness, stand in the gap, be persecuted for Jesus as a testimony to them. I think he'll give you something to say right there when you need it. Most, the Spirit of your Father, the Holy Spirit, will be able to speak through you. Isn't that good news, church? That's why I think that we can honestly have the attitude where it says right here, here it goes right here, three words, do not worry about it, about how or what. Stop worrying about it. Your favorite verse, ready? Everybody's favorite verse. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay? The easy to say, the what? The hard to do. 
Is this perhaps the easy to say? Don't worry about it. Absolutely. It's the hard to do. But when you find yourself there, brother and sister, try to do it. Try to stand in the gap. Be a witness. Be a testimony for him. And I believe he'll give you words to say. And he's telling these disciples, when you face your floggings, when you face the governors, when you face the kings, I'm going to give you words to say that you didn't prepare in advance, but I'm going to give you something to say right there. There'll be a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. But this next one gets even harder. Did that, that may have perhaps seemed a little bit difficult, but it gets even harder for these disciples as Jesus continues. Notice this in verse 21. The level of persecution. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. This has echoes of Matthew 24 so loudly and it. it's almost impossible to not hear Matthew 24 dealing with in the, the end times when love grows cold and people are delivering other brothers and sisters and family members probably over to death uh, because of their unwillingness to take the mark of the beast. I'm going to get the mark. I'm going to survive. But they didn't. Them. Her. A father against daughter. She didn't take her. Save me. Love for self becomes the name of the game. Love for family will grow cold. But it seems like he's telling his disciples right here that you're going to go out and you're going to be my witnesses and there's going to be a case. And this, again, telescoping here, it seems like this is a, a much broader context, but there's going to be uh, the, the, the reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ came to divide families. And then 22, and you will be hated by all because of my name. But it's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. Jesus clearly shows us that he knows that entire families will be divided, broken apart in the most severe of ways. All because of a newfound loyalty to him and his gospel message. Listen, the lordship of Jesus Christ must extend beyond loyalty to family members. If you love family more than you love Jesus, Jesus says you're not worthy of him. As a matter of fact, next week, we're right here, we're in chapter 10, 22. Next week, when we get to 10, 37, he says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And while this is a hard saying, it's true. I love my wife more than any human being on planet earth. And I've told her before that I have a temptation of making an idol of her in my life. I cannot love her more than I love the Lord Jesus Christ more than I love God. My total devotion has to be to God. And what I've discovered and what you'll discover is when you make him the ultimate, the penultimate in your life, the lover of your soul, and you love him more than anybody, your capacity to love others is going to be the greatest it's ever, ever been. So you can't love your wife, men, more than you love anybody else. You can't love your children. I love these two young ladies right here more than life itself. I can't love them more than I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't, I can't um, 
get up here and, and, and bend my preaching because I think, well, I've got two young adult ladies. They, they might, the culture maybe, and they, I can't bend my preaching to accommodate my kids. I can't, I can't accommodate the word of God to a culture, to younger, the younger generation, to, to continue to affirm relationships there. It may, it may cost relationships. It will. It's what Jesus is saying. It, it's not that it might impinge relationships or bring relationships to an end. It will. And in the context of the family life, there's no greater place where we can see where our ultimate loyalty lies either. Parents who are unwilling to say and do the right thing, the right thing, in other words, stand on the scriptures. Do what the word of God says. Do the right thing. Moms and dads or a husband or a wife, either or both and, doesn't matter. Unwilling to stand on what the word of God says, which we know is the right thing in order to accommodate family members. Because we don't, we don't want to push them away. We, we, we want to be loving. Listen, you can be loving. The most loving thing you can do is love Jesus Christ first and foremost in your life and stand on his word because he has words of life. It's the most loving thing you can ever do for your son, daughter, whoever it may be, your husband, your wife. That's the most loving thing you can do. And you do that with shrewdness and with innocence like a dove. But you do it. And if it costs you relationship, maybe God brings them back around again. But if you accommodate the word of God and you lessen and weaken the word of God, the, the model that you give to your kids, they will not only produce, but they will produce more of it to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next generation. And no wonder we have a generation of young people today that seem to have no concept of the fear of God whatsoever. It's staggering to hear stories of things that are happening in our culture today, just staggering. There's no fear of God in their eyes. There may be some points of application for some of us here this morning with this regard. Are you sure you want to be a follower of Jesus? Are, are you certain that you want entrance into the kingdom of heaven under his rulership now and the present kingdom of heaven and his rulership and then his future kingdom of heaven that's coming? Are you, are you certain that you want to be one of his followers, one of his kids sent out like sheep and wolves that may have to do the hard thing and stand on truth and it costs you relationally with a husband or a wife or with kids or neighbors or bosses or whoever it may be? Are you certain that you want to be known and identified as a follower of Jesus Christ today? Are you, are you sure? If you're not, I mean, now's a good time. You can just... Well, you probably wouldn't want to get up and leave, then everybody would know, and that would be embarrassing, right? Like, we're so concerned about image, what people think about me. Listen, what I want people to think about me is that I'm willing to do the right things, which are sometimes the hard things, and love people the best by speaking truth and love. And letting, and then you got to just let the chips fly, man. You got to just. Trust in God. Trust that God is good. Come what may. God is good. But, it, but my kid may think that, and then, and then they may not, they won't love you, and they won't go to heaven. Well, who made you the arbiter of entrance into heaven to begin with? 
Nobody. You made yourself that. You made yourself out to be a little God. That's idolatry. Repent. Get back underneath the headship of Jesus Christ, his lordship under your life, the word of God, and recognize that you're just simply to be what? A planter and a sower. Plant and water. Plant and water. Plant and water. Only God can bring that growth into their life anyways. But if you, if you reflect an image of a, of a very weak planting and a very poor watering and you plant a seed that's not actually the gospel seed but you kind of make them think that it is, they may end up believing in something that won't even get them there to, get, to begin with. Are you following me? There may be some room for application for us in this room this morning because we may love children more than we love Jesus. In theory... Oh, no, I love Jesus way more. Actions speak way louder than words. I'm going to tell you that right now. What you do is what you love. Period. I don't care what you say. What you do is what you love. You'll know a tree by its fruit, not by what it says. Now, I've got to hurry up and finish this because I'm at the coolest part of this entire chapter, little pericope, this unit of thought here in verse 23. This is really a perplexing. Now, don't leave this morning without settling some of these deep issues, okay? Listen, uh, th- yeah, the, the 12, this, but hey, remember, remember, there's connecting points all over the place for us and for how we live. Let's make those. Look at verse 23, but whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. I think that draws us back into the context from last week. If you don't find anybody worthy in the city, you said, well, just, just knock the dust off your feet as a testimony to them and move on down to the next city. In other words, they'll, if there's nobody worthy there, it may, it may come with persecution. They may get flogged in that city. They may be getting flogged in that town. We don't know. We don't have any recordings of that exactly, but that might be what they're facing. And so just flee to the next city. Be as shrewd as you can and innocent as doves as you can and just move on to the next city. For truly I say to you, and this is the part that gets really perplexing. Truly what I say to you, who's the you? Is the you these 12 that got sent out? Is there some telescoping here where this is a a you of a different sort, similar in that they're disciples, but of a different age of disciples? Truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel. And that's where he sent them, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel exclusively. So it seemed like he's narrowing this back into the lives of the disciples, particularly the 12 that he sent out, who are going through the cities of Israel. You will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Can you see how this could be a difficult passage to make sense of. So is Jesus here saying and there's some options uh, to look at with regard to this? And I don't think there's really need to be dogmatic unless it's the wrong ones. Um, I'm just, okay, that was a little humor relief. I'm sorry. But, um, the, um, you know, so obviously I think what it, it can't mean is that when these 12 go out to do their preaching ministry with signs and wonders and miracles, that they won't finish getting through that Galilean region until the Son of Man comes in his second coming, meaning after the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, church age, Jesus comes again. I mean, that clearly just can't be what this would be talking about because if he's just now sending them out into the regions of the Galilean regions, into the cities and towns there in Israel to do the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, how's all that going to take place while they're just out there doing that? Weren't they with him in his persecution? Yes. Weren't they with him in Acts 1? Yes. So that just 
can't be what this is talking about, and that's where sometimes people get a little bit confused on the language here where it says, until the Son of Man comes. Okay? So that's one option that I don't believe is a good option at all, so you can just kind of toss that one into the circular file of not even reasonable. Okay, now one that perhaps is reasonable, a reasonable option could be that Jesus is saying that he will soon be following up on the ministry of the disciples by coming to them whenever and wherever they may be at that time in the life of their ministry, almost like a surprise visit from the principal who just says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set you out onto that seventh grade class of English students and you're going to teach them and, and, um, and you won't finish teaching this year before I come and, and before I come and I'm going to see you. So could it be something like that, that Jesus is saying that, uh, and he calls himself here obviously with this very unique uh, messianic title from the book of Daniel, but until the Son of Man comes, that, so you, I'm going to send you out to do your work of ministry, and you're going to be out there ministering, and you won't even finish going through the cities of Israel until I'm going to make a surprise visit and come see you. I think there's some reasonability within that framework, and I think it could work, and I think he probably did that, to be quite honest about it, right? But then what we say is, well, that doesn't seem to really fit well, though, with his use of this kind of eschatologic title that we see here. Why did he all of a sudden drop in this until the Son of Man comes language? That seems to be more of an eschatological theme, right? Well, perhaps, perhaps not. That's where I don't think we can be overly dogmatic because I think that's a good option, and it's probably something that indeed did happen. However, another option could be as I mentioned, as we viewed verses 12 through 22, is this prophetic telescoping of seeing kind of the end from the beginning to the end all at one shot um, and seeing that what Jesus is in essence saying is that there's going to be this you here wouldn't be directly related to his 12. It would be more of a general concept of disciples of his all the way to the end when he comes again that there will be preaching ministry going on throughout the cities of Israel all the way from this time until his coming again. So that's another option that I think has some reasonable merit to it. It could absolutely fit within reasonable hermeneutic principles on how to interpret Scripture, and it incorporates some of the more of the prophetic language that we see here as well. So I think that that also is a reasonable understanding of how to understand the portion of this, uh, this little verse here in verse 23. Another one that I'm really intrigued with, I'm not saying it's the one I'm the most sold out on, but the one I'm very intrigued with is this view here. And by the way, these views, there's more than these four views I'm giving. There's actually, I don't know, there's some other ones. I just didn't think that they were really reasonable to throw out there because I didn't find the logic in them as much. But the, the, the last one I'm going to share with you, I like a lot. Um, I like the first two as well. I mean, the, well, not the first one, but these next, the last two I just shared with you, two and three. I really like those two. Okay, and, and, and I think both of them are true. The question is, is that what's actually happening here in this passage? And that's what the exegete tries its best to try to get to. Is that what's actually happening in this passage? Is that who that you is? Is that why they use the phrase son of man? What, what about come? These kinds of things, okay? So the last one is this that I like a lot. It's this idea, um, if we take this statement until the son of man comes here at the very end of this, and we take this phrase and we, and we view this as having eschatologic in times um, resonance with it, then if we go back to the place where we find 
that prophetically that this statement, this idea of the Son of Man coming, if we go back into our Old Testament to find where we get that and then use that as a basis and bring it back into its application here or understanding here, maybe that's what we're meant to do. And so to do that, we would go back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And I don't have time to really contextualize this, but there's a sermon on our YouTube page in Daniel on this chapter, the entire book, actually. And you can go get more of the broader context and exegetical work there. But notice in verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like, and see this language, one like the Son of Man was what? Coming. Okay? And he came. He came up to the Ancient of Days. So Jesus, being the Son of Man, was coming on clouds of heaven with movement towards the Ancient of Days, which would seem to be best understood as God the Father. And he came near God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and in verse 14, he was given dominion, glory, a kingdom, that all the people's nations and men of every tongue might serve him, his dominions and everlasting dominion, which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So here we have dominion and kingdom language that's been bequeathed on the Son of Man from the Ancient of Days when the, ancient of day, when the Son of Man shows up before him. Okay? And if we take that understanding back to this passage that Jesus teaches in Matthew 10, 23... And the you here are the 12 disciples that he sent out like sheep and wolves. And he says, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. How would we best understand that? Well, this coming right here would, in, that, in, the, in this sense, in the Daniel 7, 13, and 14 sense, this coming is not a second coming back to earth. Did you notice that? It's movement in the clouds before the Ancient of Days. His coming is movement from earth, if you will, to clouds in before the Ancient of Days when he then receives dominion and a kingdom. What happened at Jesus' ascension when he left his disciples there in Acts chapter 1? It says he ascended back into heaven in clouds. And it's reasonable to think that in those clouds was, this, was the very vision that Daniel was given all those years before. As Jesus ascended back to God the Father, movement from earth to clouds, from clouds before the Ancient of Days. So that this coming here in Matthew 10:23, until the Son of Man comes... This would be his coming before the Ancient of Days to receive his dominion and his kingdom over all the earth, over his church, his current rule and reign over the church now, and of his rule and reign when the, eternal, the millennial kingdom gets set up and ushers in the eternal age. And if that's a way of understanding this, what Jesus then is saying is that you will not finish going throughout the cities of Israel your ministry to the nation of Israel will continue all the way until I ascend back to God the Father in the, in, the, in the clouds of heaven and then end up going before him and establishing my already not yet rule 
as king over my church and the earth and in the future kingdom that's coming. Do you see that? And one of the things that really makes that an attractive approach to this passage is the word comes. Every time we look into the New Testament and we see the idea of Jesus' coming again, his second coming, it's a different verb than this verb right here. It's not the same verb. It's a different verb. And I don't want to get into word studies and right now, but just uh, the, the, um, uh, the verb that is used for Jesus' second coming is just slipping my brain. Help, give it to me, brother. Come on. Erikomai, thank you. Erikomai. So whenever you see Erikomai, thank you, Matt. When you see that in the text, no, not Erikomai, it's... Um, that is a verb. That's this verb right here. No, the other verb for come. Parousia, thank you. Gosh. See how the Holy Spirit just didn't give it to me in the minute I needed it? I wish he would have. He gave me math, though. Parousia, the parousia. The parousia, the parousia is used exclusively every time we're talking about the second coming of Jesus from earth, from heaven back down to earth. That's not this one. This is Erechamai. And so I think just from the, the aspect of the words that are used, I think that that could fit really well here. Am I going to be dogmatic about that? No, but is that, is that true? Is it a true statement that they're going to be doing ministry through the cities of Israel, proclaiming the good news of the gospel and healing and raising and all the stuff they gave them authority to do, even when the Son of Man ascends back to heaven before the Ancient of Days? Absolutely. Just go read Acts chapter 1, and you'll see exactly that that's what he was talking to them about, about the coming of the kingdom of God, and that they are to be his witnesses where in, what's the first one? In Jerusalem and in Judea. Oh, that's cities of Israel. You won't finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man ascends back to the right hand of the Father and is given dominion and authority in the kingdom. You're still going to be going and preaching that. I, to me, I think that that fits really well. I like the other two. I like all three of those. Let's just put it that way. But to me, it seems like that that would fit really well with what Jesus is talking about here. And it makes, it makes this passage contextually not weird. It makes it fit really well. Jesus is saying that this is, big picture, Jesus is saying this is what ministry is going to look like for you, my disciples, now and when I ascend back to heaven to be with the Father. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. But don't, he says it a little bit more plainly in Matthew 28, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But the Holy Spirit will give you the words you need to speak when you face persecution. But this is the cost the high cost of following Jesus, of doing ministry for him, it may cost you family relationships, etc., etc. But this is the glorious and beautiful high cost of following Christ. And he lets them know in advance before he sends them out, just in case somebody wants to back away. Not to, <laughs> more than I was banking on. And perhaps there's some of you this morning, more than I was banking on. When you came to faith in Jesus, were you banking on this? This is, this is the high calling that Jesus calls us all to. It's going to look way different than it did in their culture, I promise you, until we, until we get there, until we get into that end times and all hell breaks loose. We're going to probably look a little more like, like this than we would care to. Okay? You following me? So I want you to leave this morning with that very gnawing, drilling thought. Am I willing to make Jesus my all in all? 
and stand on his word. Be in that gap. Be a witness for him, a testimony to whoever it may be, come what may. Are you willing to be that person? Let's be those people, church. That's what's going to make the church of Jesus Christ shine brighter in a dark culture than anything will. And that's the planted seed and the watered seed that God uses to cause growth in the lives of lost sheep who need a shepherd. Amen?